the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Come to Jesus and all your troubles will be over, right? Not hardly. (laughs) We'll explore that dynamic of the Christian faith today on Truth For Today. Join us. When you come to Jesus because you have a problem and you need him to fix it, That puts into question your salvation. When you come to Jesus because of the sin in your life, then you begin to properly understand troubles are always with us, no matter what our relationship with Jesus is. We'll explore that dynamic today on Truth For Today with Pastor Phil Howard. Welcome to the program. If you would, join us here in Romans chapter 7. The Apostle Paul lays out some amazing truths for us. Saved but struggling. Here's Pastor Phil with the details. In the first six verses, he gives an illustration that says what he said in chapter 6, 14, that believers are under grace, not under law. And by that, we're not under the Torah, the law of Moses. The Christian life is never lived by law-keeping. You're neither saved by it, nor are you made holy by it. And he gives this illustration of a woman that if she wants to remarry without committing adultery under the law, all that needs to happen is for her husband to die. And she could remarry and not be called an adulteress. Now, he's not prescribing arsenic tea. You know, the famous line between Winston Churchill and Lady Astor is, she said, if I were your wife, I'd put arsenic in your tea And he said, and if I were your husband, I would drink it. Uh, He's not recommending that. But he tells a story here of uh, how, he gives the illustration, how a woman can be freed from a husband to remarry. He just needs to die. And in the application of it, in verses 4 through 6, the one who really dies is the believer has died with Christ, And that frees us from the first husband, the law, to be joined to Christ in the illustration and application, the risen Christ. And as it were, we've been married to him that we might bear his fruit. And that's the point of one through six. He's talking about our relationship to the law has ceased in Christ. Now he picks up in verse seven and notice what it says. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. So the first purpose of the law is to reveal to you how far you fall short of God. It reveals my sin. It never controls it. 
For I would not have you known, I would not know what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. Now, what in the world does that mean? The idea is sin is always in us, even when we're saved. And it lies kind of dormant there until there's a divine commandment. And when divine commandments and divine expectations are addressed to us, we are immediately aware that sin is present with us. And it's like you kind of feel like I'm law-abiding as long as I don't know the speed limit because I could drive as fast as I want, just keep me in the dark. I didn't break any law because I don't know the speed limit. And you know, that's the way the law is. If you don't know the speed limit, they can't give you a ticket. No, no. If you don't know the law and you break the law, you are still liable to the law. They're not obligated to have a policeman stand out here and tell you the speed limit. You better figure that out. And ignorance is no exemption from law. But he said, I was like alive at one time apart from the law. You read Philippians 3. Paul says, I was blameless before the law. I felt okay. I was like the rich young ruler. All the law I've kept from my youth up. But then he said something happened. The law really came. Either his understanding of it uh, at a point, something kicked in. And he understood just at the point of covetousness. The least offensive of the Ten Commandments is covetousness. You know, if you murder, that's out there. If you commit adultery, that's out there. But to covet, just to sit in a room and covet your neighbor's wife or his his possessions, that seems so harmless. No one even knows about it. Nobody even knows you're doing it. But the law brings covetousness up. The command not to do it makes me want to do it. Does anyone understand that principle? If you don't, you're deceived by yourself and you're not raising children. I mean, it's amazing. As I, you know, you forget how you raise your own children. It just goes so quick. And then as I watch my grandchildren and just watch one of the parents say, don't, and to watch children, young age, and, you know, weigh 24 pounds and just with everything in them, I will do it. No, no, don't. And all of a sudden you can see in facial countenance, I've heard you, I understand it, but I will do whatever I want. You say, you're acting like your mother. No, they're acting like both of you because you passed on a principle that you don't want anyone telling you what to do. And people get this attitude, nobody's telling me what to do. Yes, they are. They're telling you what pg and telling you what to do. The tax man's telling you what to do. The man that owns the gas station says, well, no, no, I'm, if I don't want it, I won't pay it. Okay, go ahead. We like to think nobody tells us what to do. And then the mortgage payments start coming. And the grocery man starts charging. No, because we like to think we're autonomous. 
We're under no rules because we broke away from God in the fall. We will become our own gods. We only abide by the rules we make. But Paul said, when I saw the law for all that it is, covetousness went wild in me. A man that thought I was alive to God. All of a sudden, a good thing, the law of God, slayed me for it revealed me for the sinner that I am. Watch what he says. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through that which was good. So that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am fleshly. Not unspiritual. It's really carnal or fleshly. Sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. Sounds like a schizophrenic. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law or this principle at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. The big problem with this passage is who in the world is he talking about? Who is this man? Who is, who is this a sketch of? Verses 1 through 13 are primarily past tense, especially 7 through 13. When he picks up verse 14, he starts talking in present tenses. I am this right now at the time I'm writing. He didn't say this is what I went through. I am this at the time I write. This is an apostle. This is not a carnal believer. How can he say this? Let's get a feel for 
some of the ink that's been spilled on it, all kinds of views on this chapter. Let me tell you the views and then tell you the correct one, mine, in all humility. Uh, a, a leading view is it's an unsaved man, that it's a Jewish man under the law, and that Paul's referring to his unsaved days or of the frustration of an unsaved man. And uh, it makes sense. Because he said in chapter 6 that uh, his slavery to sin ended. He said in 6.17, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. That's chapter 6. In chapter 6, you died with Christ to sin. So if I die to sin and I become a slave to righteousness, how are you over here calling me a wretched man? How are you saying I'm being led and almost seen as enslaved to the sin principle? Uh, Something seems uh, wrong. He says nothing good lives in him. But of course he qualifies that by in my sin nature. Uh, He says uh, I'm a wretched man that needs rescue. I thought you'd been rescued. I thought you uh, were in Christ. So there are arguments that lean for it being an unsaved man. Here's arguments against it. Uh, what he says of himself in 714 through there is not the way he viewed himself when he was under the law. Under the law in Philippians 3, he said, I'm blameless. I've kept it all. I see myself as a Pharisee that has subscribed to all of the law. So I don't see myself as being frustrated or defeated. I'm talking that way now. I didn't feel that way when I was a Pharisee. So what changes? Uh, He says in chapter 7, he's a man that delights in the law of God. In Romans 8, 5 through 8, he says the carnal, the fleshly mind is at enmity with God's law and God's mind. Neither can it enjoy it because it's just opposed to anything God says. So the natural man, the unsaved man, does not delight in the law of God. Uh, he laughs at it. It says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Can you see him saying, yippee, I just think that's wonderful. You shall not steal. Oh, I delight in that commandment. You shall not take God's name in vain. Oh, I just love that. No, that's not the natural man. He's at enmity with God's commands. So uh, he talks, the past tense is what he would have used if it was his unsaved days. But in verses 14 on, he's talking about present tense. I am, I am. This is my present experience. So I, I don't think it's an unsaved man. Um, there's another view, and I used to hold it strongly, that it's a carnal Christian. That it's really the Christian not walking by means of the Spirit. And uh, when you're not under the Spirit's control, you start experiencing this. Now, there is an experiential side of that that is true. Uh, and I, uh, it's one reason I held it so strongly. Um, but it's just because he used the word, I am carnal, sold under sin, 14. So, hey, carnal believer. Some of the problems with that view is that uh, some would say you've got to go through Romans 7 before you ever get to Romans 8. And the defeated Christian life is the carnal Christian in 7. 
and the spiritual Christian is chapter 8, as though we had to go through 7 to get to 8. Uh, I don't think that you have to go through chapter 7. I wouldn't favor the carnal Christian, though the dynamics do happen. The dynamics do happen. There's a Jones a view, Martin Lloyd-Jones had a view that none of you would read. It's, it's in the commentaries that, that says this is a man under conviction that hasn't been converted. And that view hasn't carried much weight. There's a fourth view, and it was really, uh, believe it or not, it was worked out in the fourth century by Augustine. And Augustine uh, worked out this view that, no, this is the view of a mature Christian. This is a mature Christian man speaking of himself that he's always aware, no matter where he is in the Christian life, that there's always an indwelling principle of sin in him that can be aroused to action, and what arouses it is the commands of God. And that there is something in you that will betray God in a minute. That you seem to be doing great, but once you bring yourself and put yourself under law, you will discover what Paul discovered, to live under the law of God and to make your Christianity my obedience to law keeping, you will be defeated, you will be proven to break it, You will be proven to have all kinds of things stirred up in you, and you'll want to do, but you won't. And you, there's things you don't want to do that you will do. Because his emphasis is this. Christianity is not law-keeping. Christianity is made up of being joined to Christ, empowered by the Spirit, and walking by faith, and not by law-keeping. He says it in Galatians 5. He says it in Romans. Now, someone's going to say, well, you're antinomian. You, you don't believe in obedience. Oh, yes, yes. But that's not the focus of where we start. The start of the Christian life is, I've been united with Christ, as 6 says. I've been given the Spirit. Now, what's interesting, chapter 7 makes no mention of the Spirit in this biography narrative. He's a man there just before the law. The whole chapter is about the law and how you can make it as a Christian and what he experienced as a man when the law came. The law is good. It's holy. It's perfect. And it does a masterful job of proving you aren't good. You're not holy. You don't have power. And there's latent within you a principle of rebellion. And any time you put yourself under that kind of Christian living, you will be one defeated, frustrated, thrown to the ground believer. Legalism has never been a true representation of Christianity. The most miserable Christians and the most self-righteous are the legalists who have a list of rules they say they're keeping, and they've moved to rules, and they've abandoned relationships. And they, they make their rules so nice, they always get credit for flying high. Now, I want to um, try to get a handle on this, and let me use uh, an analogy here. Since, 
Since Paul uses the analogy, I want to take the liberty to use it. He compares this relationship of a married relationship. And uh, his illustration is a woman's married. First husband dies. She marries second time right husband. Let me illustrate the Christian life on a marriage principle. This may be true or not true of your marriage, but it pictures many. It kind of starts this way. Boy meets girl. And when love takes place, there's obviously strong attraction. And in those early days, uh, you can see no faults. You can't listen to your mother. You can't listen to your dad because you know this is the one. And many times all they can see is faults. Does he have a job? No, what, what's it got to do with love? This is love, mom and dad. How much can he make? Oh, he doesn't. We're just in love. All we'll do is just perfect a kiss and pay the bills. No, all you'll do is have a bunch of kids and no money. Well, it's attraction. And uh, as a pastor who does premarital counseling, sometimes I think it's worthless. I've never talked anybody out of getting married. Never. Not in 30 years. They just go ahead and get married and sometimes get a divorce. But I never talk them out. Because at a certain level, when there's attraction, oh, man. I mean, you just want to play, I got married in a fever. I mean, it's just, oh, it's great. They're just great. But people who get married move beyond attraction. Let's say that attraction will move you to courtship, to make a covenant, we hope. And you take marriage vows. And then you move into marriage. And there's a strange thing that happens when you live with a person. You move from attraction to expectations. And it's a funny way you start expecting certain things from each other. Uh, at first, you don't even declare it, because if they really love you, they would know what you need. If they really love you, you wouldn't have to tell them. And so after four years of mind-guessing and missing, you finally start saying, Dummy, this is what I need. This is what I want. And all of a sudden, something comes into the marriage and says, wait, you expect that of me? Yes. What, a, what happened to attraction? With the kind of meals you've been serving, honey, the attraction wore off. I just want a decent meal. Uh, I want the house to look decent. Because, uh, hey, I'm not living on attraction. I'm living on expectations. Well, I can't meet all you expectations. And matter of fact, what happens in some marriages, the more you expect from your partner, the less you'll get. Because something called sin and pride kicks in. You expect me to do this to have your love? Yeah. Forget it. I thought you married me for me. Well, I got you. Now I need a housekeeper. Now I need a cook. Now I need a man to make me a good living. And I, I need you to take care of the lawn. And what happens in marriage 
you'll find you move from the attraction and you move to expectations and we all disappoint each other. And so you move into frustration. I'm married to someone that I've lost the attraction because I'm buried in a pile of unmet expectations. They just aren't meeting my needs. And there's, a, oh, there's just a famous one. Why do you guys want to get divorced? They just don't meet my needs. Well, they sure did in courtship. Well, then all I wanted was a good-looking gal or a handsome guy. And as long as we could just, you know, look at each other and be goo-goo-eyed, it was great. It's these expectations that seem to be hurting. Expectations, attraction, expectation, frustration. And then we're looking to bail out. And what we really need to do is refocus. And with that, we come to the end of our time together here on Truth For Today with our teacher and pastor, Pastor Phil Howard. As we close out our program today, we would invite you to contact us. Let us know how the broadcast has encouraged you, has ministered to your walk and relationship with Christ. Now, there are a couple of ways that you can contact us. By phone, obviously the easiest, 855-833-9864. Again, simply call 855-833-9864. You can also write to us at 1511 M. Sycamore Avenue, Suite 278, Hercules, California. 94547 is the zip code. Now, the easiest way to get in touch with us would be through our website, truthfortodayradio.org. Now, as you stop by, you'll be able to drop us an email, but then take advantage of the many resource materials we have available, again, there at truthfortodayradio.org. Or, again, simply call 855-833-9864. Would you also bear in mind this radio broadcast is available through listener support. As you link arms with us financially, we are able to continue the ministry here on this radio station. So please consider that as you contact us. And then come back and join us next time for another broadcast of Truth For Today with Pastor Phil Howard. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.